News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Now, our next guest works at Harvard University and studies aliens. Yes, seriously. I mean, okay, he's a world-renowned physicist who has written what, four books, authored more than 700 research papers. He has studied black holes, the early universe, and now he's looking into the existence of extraterrestrial life. So let's find out how that is going. Dr. Avi Lieb joins us now, Director of the Institute for Theory and Computation at Harvard University and lead researcher of the Galileo Project. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. Thanks for having me. What is the Galileo Project? Well, the name comes from uh, the history of uh, the trial of Galileo Galilei, who simply suggested that maybe the Earth moves around the sun and he was put in house arrest and people just refused to look through his telescope. So we uh, follow him and argue that uh, we should look for the answers uh, through our telescopes. And the Galileo Project attempts to figure out if there are any objects that were manufactured by extraterrestrial technological civilizations near Earth. And in fact, the last decade was very interesting because the first four interstellar objects, objects from outside the solar system, were discovered. Two of them by myself and my student. Uh, there were two meteors uh, in 2014 and 2017. And then there was a an object as big as a football field discovered by a telescope in Hawaii uh, in October 2017 called Oumuamua, and we can talk more about it. And then um, the last one was a comet. But in addition to that, um, the U.S. government um, uh, reported that they are detecting objects whose nature is unclear, and they established a new office. And so what we do in the Galileo Project, we say that the sky is not classified, uh, unlike uh, government documents. Uh, and we built a, a new observatory that is monitoring the sky 24-7 uh, in the infrared, optical, radio, and audio to find out if all the objects in the sky are either natural, like birds, or human-made, like balloons, those that were shut down by the U.S. government, uh, or something else. Now, what piqued your curiosity about this, Dr. Lieb? Like, what, was there a particular incident or something you saw in that telescope that you thought, okay, I need to learn more now? I'm an astronomer, so I worked on black holes, uh, stars, and so forth. And uh, in 2017, when the report came from Hawaii that there is this first interstellar object discovered, and it looks really weird, uh, that piqued my interest. Uh, uh, the way to think of me is like... Uh, um, the child in Hans Christian Andersen's uh, tale um, who said that the emperor has no clothes because in this case, it's, people called it a comet, but there was no cometary tail. And I said, there is no cometary tail. So what is pushing this object uh, beyond the, the force of gravity that acts on it? And um, I suggested it may be artificial in origin, and uh, that started my journey. And I wrote a book about it called Extraterrestrial. I have another book coming in August uh, 2023. Okay, so what, what holds the most promise out there? When you see things, what is it that you saw that needs more investigation? It's uh, those interstellar objects. So there is the first meteor, the first object in 2014, uh, exploded in the lower atmosphere of the Earth. And the U.S. government released some data about it. 
that allowed us to conclude that it must be tougher than iron, tougher than all the space rocks we had seen before. So we are going on an expedition to the Pacific Ocean to collect the fragments left over, all the relics from that meteor. We want to figure out whether it was some unusual rock or was it a spacecraft from another civilization. So the most pressing question to me is, what's the composition of that first interstellar meteor? Does it look like an artificial alloy, uh, stainless steel, or is it a rock? What makes it so different then? Like, and, and you can tell that just from looking through your telescope. Like, What makes this particular meteorite so different? Oh, this meteorite was not observed by our telescope. It was observed by the U.S. government sensors. That they monitor the sky for ballistic missiles and national security risks, and they just detected it in 2014 over the Pacific Ocean. And what made it special is that it moved very fast relative to other space rocks because it came from outside the solar system. And in addition, it exploded only in the lower atmosphere of the Earth. So it was able to maintain its integrity. It must have had a very high material strength, uh, tougher by at least a factor of 10 than iron meteorites, uh, we concluded, based on the government data. So what made it special is the high speed and the strength of the material that makes it. So how are you going to find this? So we localized uh, the area uh, thanks to uh, a seismometer on Manus Island in Papua New Guinea, and uh, now we know where it should be. Uh, now, it's not the, the, the object that fell from the sky. It's actually what, whatever was left from it because it exploded as a result of the friction with the air. So we are going after the small fragments uh, probably the size of the head of a pin, you know, very small fragment. And if we collect enough of them, we should be able to tell what the composition was. And we know where to go. Uh, I got funding at $1.5 million for that. Uh, and uh, hopefully this summer we, we'll go and check. So this is one branch of the Galileo project that I'm very excited about. Another one is that we have this observatory that I was talking about where we monitor the sky and if we see anything unusual, I'll be glad to let you know about it. Yeah, I would love to hear about that. But what do you classify as anything unusual? Because it seems to me there would be a lot of unusual things. Well, we train uh, artificial intelligence um, uh, software uh, to distinguish between natural objects like uh, birds, bugs, uh, and uh, human-made objects like uh, balloons, drones, airplanes, rockets. Uh, and uh, the way I approach it is basically to identify everything that we are familiar with and then see if anything is left in a bucket that is unexplained and start looking at those things. Um, but if we can explain everything, then nothing would remain and, and then we'll resolve this issue. So it sounds like you go a lot with your curiosity, Dr. Lieb. Like you just, you see something, you have a question, you're going to go check that out. Exactly. Well, that. I, being a scientist gives uh, the privilege of uh, following your childhood curiosity. And unfortunately, I'm, I'm very frustrated with many of my colleagues that lose that because at some point in their career, they start chasing honors, uh, uh, appreciation from their peers. Uh, that's not our job definition. Our job definition is to figure out reality, what is out there. And the way to do it is by collecting evidence. So I'm a theoretical astrophysicist, but nevertheless, I 
felt the need to lead an experimental observational project because nobody else is doing it. Right. You raise a good question, though. How has your research been received by your peers? Well, there was a lot of pushback, but I, I don't have any accounts on social media. I don't care how much, how many likes I have on Twitter. That That is irrelevant. And so I'm uh, not vulnerable to public opinion. I just want to do what sounds like common sense. And unfortunately, common sense is not common. Um, that, but, is so uh, so, that is so true. That is so true. There was a lot of pushback, but I, I think uh, things are changing now. And uh, there is a huge amount of excitement and interest in the public and also in government. So I say, you know, as scientists, we, it's our civil duty to uh, figure out things that the public cares about, that the government cares about, rather than close up in academia and basically say, you know, uh, let's check if there are extra dimensions, if there is a multiverse, things that, what is the dark matter, things that do not affect people's lives or the future of humanity immediately. Um, and something went wrong in academia in, in that sense. And I'm trying to return to our roots in a way of listening to what society cares about and doing what needs to be done. And unfortunately, you know, the, there is no federal funding for that, but I'm getting a lot of public support. Well, I can see why. So how, when do you embark on this project? Like, when do you think you'll be able to get some more answers? Ah, uh, this summer, summer 2023. Uh, it's very challenging, I should say, but, you know, I'm hopeful, but it's possible we will not find anything uh, left from this uh, meteor. But if we do, you'll hear about it. Okay, I look forward to that. Thank you so much for your time this morning. Thanks for having me. This is Mornings with Simi. Do you do the crossword every day? Maybe some Sudoku, some kind of puzzle to get your brain going. I know lots of people who do this because, you know, we tend to think, hey, it's good for my brain. Tends to keep me focused and keeps things exercised up there, right? Well, it's actually a very good idea because there is something called the BC Brain Wellness Program. It's actually grown by leaps and bounds since they started it back in 2019. We're going to learn more about it right now with Dr. Silky Apple-Cresswell, who's the co-founder and director of the BC Brain Wellness Program. Thank you so much for joining us. Good morning. Thank you for having me. How important is it for us to exercise our brain? Really important. And, you know, you just mentioned the crosswords. It's important to do a variety of things. Um, Sally Stelling, our physiotherapist, always says, if all you do is walk around the block, you're not getting better at tennis. So you really want a variety of things that you're doing. Okay, like what? So for exercise itself, so if we speak physical exercise, you want to have a, you first of all want to do something you enjoy because then you're actually going to do it. And then you want to have a combination of aerobic activity. You want to have strength training, so really strengthening your muscles, stretching and balance exercises. Falls are a huge issue when we all get older. So that's just the exercise, physical exercise side. But in addition, things like Nutrition, so for example, a healthy Mediterranean-type diet based mostly on fruit and vegetables, nuts, seeds, olive oil, etc., and then cutting out the highly processed things, cutting out the sugary things uh, um, is really important too. And we learn more and more how nutrition is really important for brain health and overall health, of course. 
and things like stress reduction, for example, with mindfulness, and then being just creative, being cognitively active. Uh, you know, you can learn the language, be engaged uh, and discuss the news. Uh, um, you can play music, you, you can do art, etc. All of that is important. Being out in nature is helpful, getting good sleep. So how we live really, really matters. Uh, we tend to also, as we get older, get that brain fog, don't we? Like I search for words now that I never had to search for before, <laughs> and it drives me crazy. Is it possible mm-hmm. to keep like train our brain to 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 get better at that? Yeah, it is, and you know you're absolutely right. I think that happens to all of us, and uh, um, it can be completely normal. Of course, if this goes beyond that, then uh, this might be. Uh, worth looking at a bit closer, but yes, we can. And we know from research that these healthy activities that I just described and I should have mentioned, being part of a community, so not being lonely, but being socially engaged is incredibly important for that too. So we will age better and we will have sharper brains if we engage in those activities. And you can train your brain to a certain degree as well in in terms of, I think you're asking about cognitive function here. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Buy things like do the things that you want to get better at. You know, if you always do Sudoku, you'll get better at Sudoku, but that doesn't make us better at, let's say, word finding. Uh, So if we want to, uh, let's say, keep language, then discussing concepts, discussing the news, a movie, a book we just read, just discussing anything using our language is going to be important for, for that. So you need to, hmm. to practice those activities. What about getting a, a little bit outside of our comfort zone too, like in terms of learning new things and, and, and things like that? Yeah, you're absolutely spot on. So what doesn't challenge you doesn't change you. So learning something new and getting out of the comfort zone is a great idea. So this is all, so this can be done. We can improve our brain function. We absolutely can. The brain, we have learned in the last 20 years or so, the conception of the brain as a static organ has changed very much and we know that there are constantly new connections being made and what we do constantly changes our brain. So yes, we can make a difference by the way we live and by the activities we do. So where can we find out more information about the BC Brain Wellness Program? Yeah, we're actually online. We um, have a website called bcbrainwellness.ca and thanks to very generous donors, and uh, including, uh, of course, the BGH and UBC Hospital Foundation, this program is currently available for free for um, by self-referral, so you can just sign up on the website. We do have a waitlist for several classes, though, because it is there's just such high demand. And we serve people who live with chronic brain conditions, so this could be anything from mm-hmm. Parkinson's to MS to stroke to traumatic brain injury, depression, etc. But also their care partners and anybody who's getting older, which is like, yeah, really all of us. All of us. All of us. <laughs> exactly. uh, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Well, thank you for having me. This is Mornings with Simi. You may have heard that Canada and the United States have struck a deal to deal with migrants crossing our border, in particular at a crossing called Roxham Road. That's not an official border crossing. It will now, though, be closed and migrants will either have to go back or find an official border crossing or 
they may find a more dangerous route. Now, that is the concern that is being raised by our next guest. It's Erfat Arbel, who's an associate professor of refugee law at UBC's Allard School of Law. Thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you for having me. Has this become an increasing concern? Do you think the lengths to which people are going to to come into the country? I think it's actually important to take a step back and view things in context. The phenomenon of irregular migration that we've seen uh, over the past few years was actually caused by the Safe Third Country Agreement. Uh, and this is the very agreement that has been uh, the source of so much dispute and that has now been expanded for the length of the border. Canada has gone through great lengths over many, many decades to prevent asylum seekers from crossing the border and seeking asylum in Canada. Canada has done this simultaneously as it has expanded its resettlement programs and offered protection to countless refugees from around the world, but through a fundamentally different stream. And the Safe Third Country Agreement is one mechanism by which Canada has effectively closed the border to refugee claimants. It operates in ways that prevent asylum seekers from making claims at ports of entry unless they fit within one of very, very narrow exceptions recognized by the agreement. Now, the effect this has had since we're blocking people from entering through official ports of entry is to push them towards unofficial ports of entry like Roxham Road. This closure of Roxham Road, this expansion of the Safe Third Country Agreement across the border, is not going to prevent people from entering. It's just going to push them towards more precarious, more dangerous, more disorderly methods of entering and cause more harm, not just to asylum seekers, but to Canadian border regulations. Okay, so what is the challenge then for them to apply through the, the, the system, the way the system is set out? The way the system is set out has two streams. One of them is resettlement, which is the stream for which Canada deserves and uh, receives much praise around the world. Resettlement is the way um, where Canada negotiates with UNHCR, uh, the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, selects refugees from abroad, and they arrive at Canadian airports, usually welcomed um, by Canadians, who then provide them with assistance, housing, um, and they arrive as permanent residents. So that is the method through which um, resettled refugees arrive. And this is the, the typical image that we associate with media of Canadians, including the Prime Minister, welcoming refugees at the border. This is not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about here is a completely different method through which refugees arrive at our shores. And this is called asylum, the method that I'm speaking of now. This is where a a person is persecuted in their home state. They fear for their lives, their safety, the lives of their loved ones. They pick up what they have and they go. And they take enormous risks and go through enormously precarious journeys to try to arrive at Canadian soil at the Canadian border in order to seek protection. Now, okay. yeah, so why not? Yeah, why, why can't they at that point then go to a border crossing and claim asylum there? Why do it this way? The Safe Third Country Agreement prohibits them from doing so if they enter through the United States. And the only land border we have, the only accessible border we have is with the United States. So the Safe Third Country Agreement, which has been in place since 2004, says if you arrive at an official border like you're supposed to, we're going to turn you back. 
unless you can show that you fit within one of these very narrow exceptions. But the agreement has been in place since 2004 and has operated to return countless, countless, countless asylum seekers back to the United States, where we know they are detained, they face risk of deportation, and they face the, the risk of return to their country of origin where they face persecution. So what is the alternative here? There are a number of alternatives. The first one is to scrap the safe third country agreement. It has not been an effective mechanism through which to regulate the border, and it operates to enhance irregular border crossings and create strain on um, Canadian resources to monitor the border. Not, not only that, but of course to place the lives and the safety of refugees at risk. So that's one option, is scrapping the agreement. And in fact, there is at present a constitutional challenge to the, the, the legality of this agreement before the Supreme Court of Canada. And that um, constitutional challenge was argued in October, and we're waiting for results any day now. So that's option number one. But option number two is to um, create more exceptions for the agreement. Canada and the United States can, in the same way that they've, they've created this new policy, create new policy. And Canada has the ability to look at the particular migrants or refugees who are vulnerable in the United States, who are unable to seek protection there, and to craft new principled exemptions that allow more people to come in in safe and orderly ways. But what the Canada and the U.S. have done now is just arbitrarily close the border and place refugees at enhanced risk. And they've done it in a way that is just going to create more danger, uh, more costs, and more risk along the border. Isn't the idea, though, that if they're in the United States, that is still not as bad as where their origin country was? They're not being sent back to their original country. That's the idea, but it's a flawed idea. So there are a number of responses to that. The first one is, there is individuals have an international right under international law to seek asylum. There are many reasons why someone might choose to come to Canada and not to the United States that are principled, that are reasonable, that should be respected and valued. But more importantly, the second answer is the United States is not a safe country for refugees. And this is what has been argued before the Supreme Court of Canada and several courts before it. The United States has a long track record, long before the presidency of Donald Trump, of creating subpar standards for refugee protection. The United States falls far below international standards of refugee protection, and it creates um, significant barriers to particularly vulnerable people, including women, who are unable to get meaningful protection in the United States. The United States has a massive and horrific immigration detention regime whereby hundreds and thousands of people are detained in for-profit prisons. The, the <clears throat> treatment of asylum seekers who end up in those facilities is horrific. And the United States has a strong track record of uh, deporting people, of deporting people to face situations of persecution, and of deporting people to face situations of torture, which is contrary to international law. Right. It does sound like, though, this, this agreement reached um, is not going to be changed then. So do you feel like is there any indication from the Canadian government that things could be done differently? There should be an indication from the Canadian government. And what worries me is that we're seeing the Canadian government use refugees as political fodder, and that's not right. Uh, 
Canada has a long tradition of welcoming newcomers at our shores. And this, this is a moment of, in history where Canada has turned its back on that tradition in a clear and devastating way. So what's open to the Canadian government are two things. Number one, to wait for the Supreme Court of Canada and see what the Supreme Court of Canada will say. And number two, to change its approach, to see the forest for the trees and not to use uh, refugees and and put their lives at risk for for political gain. Uh, Efra, thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you very much. This is Mornings with Simi. Feels like we all have worries about money these days, don't we? But in particular, there is one generation that is really feeling the pressure of debt. Actually, it is millennials. A new survey shows that particular age group has the highest rate of debt. So let's find out why that is. Blair Manton joins us now, president of Sands and Associates and licensed insolvency trustee. Good morning, Blair. Oh, good morning. So why are millennials the ones that are in particular handling all this debt? Well, you know, in general, the consumer, especially in BC, is really stretched. There's been a lot of factors working against them. But if you consider the situation millennials find themselves in, it's harder for this generation, I'd say, than any other generation before, really to start to make financial headway. If you think back to even just student loans, you know, a generation ago, a lot of people could finish school without a student loan. Um, You know, I checked, I graduated 2002 uh, from business school, and my tuition is half of what it would be today. Um, I also went back and benchmarked the scholarship I was lucky enough to achieve then and that hasn't changed by a dollar so even in my specific situation you know just 20 years ago I would have been able to cover all my costs with a scholarship and now would be less than half so if you think the average student is coming out with a large student loan they're coming into an environment we've just come out of a pandemic there's high inflation cost of living not to mention real estate it just seems like a perfect storm of factors working against someone start trying to get established in their professional life right so they're you know earlier in their lives are piling up that debt whereas for different generations, uh, that would have been later on down the line. Yeah, that's definitely a factor. And when we think about, um, you know, the weird and wonderful products that we have for debt these days, there's a lot of things now that didn't exist a generation ago, things like high-cost payday loans, and even something that we're seeing more now, high-cost, you know, instant or rapid loans. These can have interest rates of anywhere from 30 to 59.99%, and that was just rates that you didn't see, you know, 20 or 30 years ago. Now we see them everywhere. Right. I like the way you put that, though. That's You're being generous. Weird and wonderful ways to get money. What is a rapid loan? How is that different well, from, like, these payday loans? Well, a payday loan traditionally would be for a short amount of time and a pretty small amount of money. You know, maybe it's $500 to get you through to the next payday. Um, these rapid loans can be for upwards of $10,000, and they're not made to be paid back, you know, like by your next paycheck. They're typically installments over time, over periods of time. And it's very common to see things like, you know, 45%, 50% interest rates when you add in the service charges, NSFs, over limit fees. Uh, it just gets really tough to get out of a cycle. So it's quite often we don't see a client with one of those loans, we see them with three or four or, you know, a couple payday loans and some of these these rapid loans. And it just it builds a, a vicious cycle. How are those allowed with such unbelievably high that's crushing interest rates? Well, that, that's a question for our policymakers. And if we look at the law, um, the Criminal Code of Canada says the maximum interest rate is 60 percent. But if you're at 59.99, well, hey, that's OK. You're skating within the lines there. Wow. Okay. So yeah, it does seem like the deck is really stacked against this particular generation. But overall, would you say, Blair, that every generation is kind of feeling the squeeze right now? 
Oh, w- without a doubt. Um, at, at Sands & Associates, the phone's just been ringing off the hook these last few months. And I, I checked this, the statistics just broadly for the province and the number of people filing consumer proposals year over year in January, which is the most recent statistics, it's 42% higher just this year compared to last year. I don't know many in, uh, economic indicators that go up by 40% in a year, uh, but that's one that's, you know, blinking bright red right now. So there's a lot of folks that are dealing with pandemic debt, things like CERB benefits that they might not have realized were taxed. Now they've got the government chasing them down. We've got creditors reanimating all of their collection activities, in some cases with a vengeance and starting to sue people they might not have sued before. Um, And we've got a high inflation, high cost of living environment. So I've been a trustee for 15 years. I've seen some of these factors come and go one at a time, but this seems like every factor at once is really causing a challenge for the consumer. Oh, Blair, I have a feeling we're going to have to talk more about that. Uh, Thanks for your time this morning. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. It is back to school today after spring break for many students, teachers and families all over the province. Back to classrooms, though, that may still need some work. It's something we heard a lot about from teachers in particular during the pandemic, right? On that note, though, the provincial government says there will be some financial help coming for school maintenance. So... Let's find out more about that. Joining us now is Rakhna Singh, the Minister of Education and Child Care. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you, Simi. Good morning to you. Thanks for having me. Well, what is this new fund? Like, what can schools expect to get? So, uh, Simi, like, our, uh, since we formed the government in 2017, we want uh, students to uh, learn in safe and modern classrooms. And uh, so we have invested in the big capital projects, but uh, along with that, there are maintenance costs that the school districts incur. And uh, so this, we are investing $261 million in the maintenance uh, of, the, uh, of different schools. Like uh, those can be uh, filtration projects, they can be electrical or plumbing, uh, so that the uh, students are learning in cleaner and safer classrooms. Okay, so this is new money that they can expect to receive? No, this is the money that they used to receive uh, before as well. But this one, there is an increase in that money. This is more than what we were giving in previous years. So this year, it is $261 million, uh, which is an increased amount that the school districts will be getting. Okay, so that is more money they will be getting. Now, is there are there some rules about what they can spend this money on? I know many uh, schools and teachers have talked about their concern over ventilation in classrooms in particular. So uh, our part of this funding, uh, Simi, uh, I'm really happy to say that 40 million, uh, 41 million uh, of this uh, money is going into the upgraded uh, uh, HVAC systems uh, in the school districts all across the British Columbia. Uh, but there is also, uh, there's different ways the school districts can dis- use this money. Also, money is going into the purchase of the electrical school buses. Uh, we know uh, how the uh, clean uh, a clean environment is a priority for all of us. So this money is also going into that. But uh, also uh, to support, uh, as I mentioned before, the electrical upgrades uh, at 86 schools throughout the uh, carbon neutral capital program. Right. Okay. So 86 schools then, how, how do you make it onto that list? Are these schools that the school districts have targeted for more maintenance? Yes. Uh, so uh, ministry, uh, the Ministry of Education works very, very closely with the school districts and they have their priorities. Uh, they know like uh, which are the projects that are important for them. And it is 
uh, working closely with the school districts and understanding their priorities. But this money is going to the school districts and they decide like where this money would be going. Okay. And how soon can the districts then expect this money to arrive? So this is uh, uh, this was announced in the budget uh, 2023, uh, and uh, so we, uh, I know uh, the school districts have received uh, all the school districts have received their capital letters, um, and uh, this money will be going out to them. Uh, I'm sure it will be going out very quickly to them. Okay, so they can expect perhaps some upgrades to start soon, like in the next few months. Absolutely, and. Uh, uh, that is what the priority uh, for me as an education minister is uh, and also as a parent whose kids are going to the public school system. Mm, interesting. All right. Thank you so much for your time on that this morning. Oh, thank you so much, Simi. Thanks for having me. This is Mornings with Simi. I think it's hard for anyone to talk about their struggles, right? It's hard for all of us to do that. It's hard to talk about them publicly. It's hard to even do that, especially if you're in the healthcare system where you know how important it is and how people have so much faith in it. And to say, hey, we are struggling and the system is straining, that's a scary thing for anybody. But more and more healthcare workers are doing that, including our next guest. Heather Haberly is a cardiac intensive care unit nurse in Calgary and has been speaking up, writing about her experiences there. Heather, thank you for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Tell me, Heather, what made you want to take the step, I know it's a hard one, to, to talk about your struggles like publicly? Um, to be honest, I had signed up for a writing workshop with the Calgary Public Library in partnership with CBC. Um, actually, just as my own kind of personal therapy, <laughs> I find writing to be quite therapeutic. And so I did this workshop and then the leader of the workshop had encouraged me to publish my story just because it was kind of at the forefront of the public eye. So yeah. it was through her support and encouragement that I shared it. You said that you find writing therapeutic. Was this something that uh, you found yourself turning to more and more? Um, well, I, I suppose throughout life I've had ebbs and flows where I journal more or less. Um, and... I was employing all of the uh, all of the coping mechanisms throughout the pandemic, and writing started to become one of them. And having a workshop where it was a lot of really unique individuals speaking about their struggles was also a pretty cool experience because it kind of reminds you that we're all going through things, and it was um, a really supportive environment. Yeah, what's your job like, Heather? So I don't work in the cardiac ICU anymore. Um, so do you want to know about what it was like or do you want to know about what it is currently? <laughs> well, tell me about what it was like, I know, because you've written quite a bit about that. Yeah, so it was incredible. I worked alongside some pretty extraordinary people. Um, the the teamwork was quite dynamic. It was fast-paced there was always something exciting happening, but it was kind of at the heart of humans and no pun intended. It was really working with people who had sick hearts um, and keeping them kind of from that tipping point of the brink of life and death and and everything in between. But it was a really nice balance of critical care with patients who were also alert and um, they would be able to talk and interact. And so you did get a lot of really special interactions with them as well. What, what happened, though, during the pandemic? How did, you, how did your job change? How did the system change, do you think? 
So COVID really put a strain on teams that were already kind of working at maximum capacity. We were dealing with staffing challenges, overcapacity issues. Care was redistributed and our teams changed. We were we were redeployed. We had teams that were redeployed to us and they were extraordinary nurses, but the skill sets were mismatched. So they'd come and they weren't necessarily trained to work with our cardiac arrest patients. And um, oftentimes the staffing ratios felt unsafe. We didn't always have enough nurses, especially when we started, uh, when nurses themselves started getting COVID or, you know, new policies would come in on, on sickness. And so if you, if it was allergy season and your allergies were acting up, but that was also a symptom of COVID, you were not coming to work that day. And so it was really interesting to see how that piece of the pandemic, um, the, the staffing was really just um, strained. It was really quite scary and terrifying to be caring for sick patients who need you, who are kind of depending on your knowledge of them and their disease trajectory to be at the bedside. And, and all of a sudden you're asked to leave and care for someone else or multiple patients because you don't have enough people on your team that day. What, what do you see happening to nurses and to nurses' mental health? Well, I think that there is definitely a lot of coping mechanisms being employed and nurses are stressed. They're kind of at their max. We've had some people leave and go to other areas of nursing, uh, myself included, to just kind of take a little time out from that critical care area. And I think that um, nurses are a pretty resilient bunch and we have a really strong support network within each other. But when you dismantle our teams, we we struggle. And so nurses are struggling and we are, are really wishing that this would have been something that was seen before the pandemic because staffing has been an issue for decades. And I think that the hardest part of going into um, any sort of healthcare situation and going to work in the day is thinking that your organization doesn't have your back. And that is what is really hard for, for me and my mental health is just the long-term commitment to, to an organization that maybe tries to have your back, but really doesn't hear what you need. Do you think this is happening all across the country? Yeah, it's absolutely happening all across the country. You look at Ontario nurses and their staffing shortages. You, uh, Manitoba is having a hard time recruiting nurses and bringing nurses in. And I, from what I hear in BC, it's not not great either. So what what do you want people to know? Like when you're communicating with them about the struggles that are going on out there, what is the most important thing you want people to take away from that? Well, firstly, that... We, your nurses, really love our job and we are doing our best for you. And so when you're frustrated that things are taking a long time or that we haven't had a chance to answer your questions, know that we're trying our best. And what I also want them to know is that we need to demand accountability and transparency from our leadership, whether that's our healthcare organizations or our government. And if we're channeling dollars towards healthcare programs, what we really need to see is um, a clear breakdown of where those dollars are going. And maybe healthcare needs to be a little bit more democratic. Maybe you need to let the, the nurses, the worker bees, the ones that see and feel and understand the problems 
maybe they need to be part of the decision-making process because right now they aren't. And I'm not sure how that works across the country, but in Alberta, we are not part of the decision-making process. We do not have a formal way to give feedback to our superiors. We do not have a way to impact how leadership decisions are made within Alberta Health Services. And I think that we are the ones that understand the problem the best. I think nurses in every province would probably agree with you on that one. Listen, Heather, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. Thanks for the time here. This is Mornings with Simi. These challenges, uh, to state the obvious, are real and significant. And they are bigger than just Vancouver. They impact our entire region. All right, that's Vancouver Mayor Ken Sim standing right alongside Housing Minister Ravi Kalon over the weekend announcing new measures that are being taken to try to improve things, particularly on the downtown east side. So what does this plan entail? Well, joining us now is Ravi Kalon, BC's Minister of Housing. Thanks for being here. Good morning, Simi. Thank you for having me. Okay, tell me first about this announcement. What is it all about? Well, the, uh, the announcement was uh, uh, multi-pronged. One, we released our strategy uh, that we're going to be employing for downtown Eastside. We've been working with uh, stakeholders, um, uh, Indigenous partners, uh, the local government, federal government, on what our response plan can look like. But we haven't been waiting for the plan to come out. In fact, uh, what we've already done is opened up 140 uh, uh, shelter spaces for people, for individuals that are um, uh, unhoused, and particularly around uh, Hastings Street, uh, 90 people have already got housing. So at one point we were close to 200 people uh, on Hastings Street that needed housing. Now we're, uh, latest number I have is that there's 70 people that are still seeking housing. So we have made that significant progress, but we announced additional supports, mental health supports, an additional 330 units, which will be open by uh, end of June. Uh, about 120 every single month, 110 every single month, and uh, and and much more, uh, obviously, uh, ahead of us. Okay, so where are these people being moved into then? Is this temporary housing? Is it something where they will get those supports? Well, the folks that are in encampments, the first step is always the shelters. Uh, the shelters provide us an opportunity to bring staff there to assess people's needs, to see what kind of supports they need. Some people might need supportive housing. Some people may need uh, complex care housing, which is, uh, you know, individuals who are going to be just very uh, challenged to find uh, housing for. And then some people may just need rental supplements to be able to afford rent because some people are actually working, but they have nowhere to go. And so we assess uh, people there and then we are able to get them either into SROs, into supportive units or uh, complex care units. Okay, so we're still using SROs because we, I thought that was something that even Premier David Eby said is not ideal. Well, when you look at SROs, I think, uh, you know, obviously sometimes they get the blanket for all SROs. We have kind of three stages of SROs. We have some that are in a fairly good shape. We have some that are, uh, you know, okay. Uh, and then we have a small number that are in, in rough shape. They're very, very old, uh, and it's hard to do renovations on. And our focus has been on addressing those, that small part of the stock, that is in a real bad shape, we're working with CMAC, City of Vancouver, uh, BC Housing, to figure out how we do that. Do we renovate them? Do we tear them down and start new? Those are the conversations in that small pocket of SROs. Uh, but a lot of the SROs are actually in decent shape, uh, and the new ones we're bringing on uh, are fully renovated and, uh, and obviously in, in good shape because they're newer units. 
Okay, I'm, I'm going to get to the question about BC Housing in a moment, but the, the 70 or so people that are still uh, down there, what are the challenges there then? Is there not enough space for them somewhere? Do they not want to uh, take up the housing that's being offered? Like, what is the challenge there? Well, uh, the challenge is that uh, uh, often people don't want to take the space. And right now, we have enough shelter spaces for those 70 people to get indoors. And, uh, and there's a various uh, whole host of reasons why people choose to do something and do not, uh, or not take these spaces. But what I would say to those people is that uh, given the fire situation that we've seen, uh, the fire starting uh, around downtown Eastside and the encampments, uh, the crime, we had a, a report done by a not-for-profit. They interviewed 50 women. All 50 said that they had been sexually assaulted in the encampment. Uh, so it's not safe. And so we continue to urge people, take the shelter space, let us do the assessment, and when these new units are opening up, we could shift you into those new units. But the spaces are there. So the spaces are there. So then what is being done to encourage people to take them? Well, we have teams on the ground that are actually out there. They've been actually working for five, six months now, building trust, building relationships with these individuals. Uh, you know, it, it, the, the trust piece is always a challenge, and, uh, and that's what they've been doing, trying to encourage them. Like I said, 90 people have moved in, uh, and, uh, and the 70 people, we continue to encourage them to go. There's about 110 people total, so there's an additional 40 people there that refuse to talk to anybody, and, uh, and, and they can, we can't get an assessment of whether they need housing or whether they don't care uh, for housing. And, uh, but the 70 people that need it, we're working actively to move them into housing as fast as we can. So what are you gonna do? what's going to happen then with the people who are not engaging? Uh, well, that's just a very challenging situation. Uh, you know, uh, our, we've said from the beginning that our goal was to ensure that there's no encampments, that we have shelter available for people. And that continues to be our goal. The encampments are not, they're not safe for the people that are living there. They're not safe for the community at large. We've seen that with fire. We've seen that with the increase in crime. And so our goal is to continue to find ways to get these people out of the encampments because for the long run, encampments are not the way we need to, to be rolling in our communities. Right. You mentioned BC Housing earlier, and I know there was some concern about this report. You said you've received this report, have you? The one that was done that an auditor took a look at BC Housing? Correct. Yeah. yeah. Last year, we had an uh, EY report, Ernest Young report, uh, done on uh, the finances uh, of BC Housing. Uh, it came out with a whole host of recommendations uh, that they felt that BC Housing needed to put in place to make sure that there was high level of accountability, that we're able to meet the, uh, the targets, that the, the ambitious targets that we've set on them. Um, part of that report uh, at the time, Premier Evie, had identified uh, some additional information. Uh, had At that point, uh, the Premier took a decision to change the board, uh, to bring in a brand new uh, uh, board overseeing BC Housing, and then also take it to the uh, Office of Controller General to do a forensic audit and, and pretty much said to them, go ahead, go where you need to go with this to get the information. And, and that report has arrived to government. I received it personally, uh, read it on Monday. Uh, and uh, yeah, again, my, my opinion is that uh, I believe that report should be released as soon as possible uh, with as little redaction as possible because it's in the public interest. Okay, so that's the thing. I think a lot of people would like to hear it. I know you'd also said, though, you have to check with the people who are in the report. Like, what is your commitment to releasing as much as possible? Well, there's a legal process that we must follow that I'm committed to following uh, under the Privacy uh, Commission laws. 
uh, and that process entails entities that are named for them to have the ability to uh, read it and provide comment. And, uh, and so that is the process we're going to follow uh, to, the, to, the, to the line in the book. Um, but again, I'm uh, hoping that uh, this is done very soon because I think the public deserves to see what's in this report. Okay, so no real timeline then? A couple weeks? Uh, it, it's hard to give a timeline, uh, given that uh, when people uh, get this opportunity, uh, they may want to provide comments, they may not. And so it could be earlier, it could be quick, uh, longer. But uh, again, I'm hoping right. that you know within a month we're able to get this out. How did you feel when you read it, though? Like, do you, do you think that there'll be more changes needed? Or, or do you feel like it's on the right track now? Like, what kind of reaction did you have? Well, I, I can't really comment on that at this point, Simi. Uh, I, all I can say is that uh, what I've said already, which is uh, it, it is, uh, I think, important for the public to see this. Uh, the Premier was clear from day one. Once he heard there was uh, some issues at BC Housing, he wanted transparency. Uh, he took action. And uh, reading the report, I understand why he took the actions and look forward to having the report uh, laid out in the public. All right. I look forward to talking to you about it, though, when that happens. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's going to be good. Yeah, but in the meantime, we've got a lot of things we have to do. And and uh, like I said, the 330 units that are coming online uh, by the end of June is, is progress. And I think it's just uh, it shows that uh, when City of Vancouver, us, our not-for-profit partners work together, we can make things happen. And, uh, and, and you know, two decades of underinvestment in housing, uh, we're behind. But uh, I believe we can make that uh, catch up as uh, over the coming years. All right. Well, thanks so much for your time this morning. Yeah, thanks to me. Be safe.